Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson, founder of Functional Health Info and the Functional Health Podcast. I'm trained in both biomedical science and nutrition, and I believe that a holistic and functional approach to health is fundamental to our well-being. I've set out to find some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, from practitioners to professors and everyone in between. With this podcast, I will share with you their stories, their expertise, and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives and providing you with simple tips and tricks to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to be speaking to Ben Brown. Ben is a naturopath, nutritionist, science writer, and speaker. He is author of the book, The Digestive Health Solution, editor of both the Journal of Orthomolecular Medicine and the Integrative Healthcare and Applied Nutrition magazine. I first heard of Ben through his work with Viridian Nutrition and eventually heard him speak at an engaging seminar in London. So, without further ado, Ben, welcome to the show. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Ben, you have authored the book, The Digestive Health Solution. When and why did this area of research interest you? Uh, that's a that's a great question, and it, it's got a couple of different answers. Um, the first the first answer is it's always interested me, um, and the reason for that is because one thing you tend to learn fairly quickly when you're diving into the area of nutrition and and functional medicine is that the gut is a critical uh, interface between our environment and food and our health. So it really is pivotal. And the health of our gut is really pivotal for determining the health of our whole body and our brain even. Um, so that's the, the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer is, well, the book came about because I got really sick myself. I was traveling through northern Africa, got uh, what we call post-infectious um, irritable bowel syndrome. And as part of my own journey towards recovery, I was collating a lot of research and information trying to uncover what really works and what helps people and um, while I was doing that I saw an opportunity for a book to pull all that information together to help others basically so that's sort of how the book came about it was an accident really. One thing people seem to experience globally is a a degree of digestive problems uh, whether they be minor or quite severe and even debilitating in some cases and they're normally categorized, as you said, under the umbrella term known as irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. Mm-hmm. Now, from what I understand, you have an alternative view to this diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, you know, I've been spending a lot of time looking at IBS, researching it, talking about it, writing about it um, and working in that area. And I've sort of come up with this radical idea that actually it doesn't exist and what I, what I mean by that is is that IBS is an umbrella term based on symptoms and there can be underlying causes or reasons why people have, you know, the label IBS. Um, if you think about that for a minute, it means that actually there are things responsible for those symptoms that we could potentially address. And I really believe that in most cases, IBS, in the in the sense of the definition, doesn't actually exist. There is 
some underlying contributory factors that we can do something about importantly that are explaining those symptoms. Um, so that's what I mean by it. It doesn't really exist. And this is quite a novel view. You don't hear many people talking about this, especially not in the conventional medical literature. No, it it, it is a bit novel. And um, to support that view, I've um, written up a literature review that's been submitted for publication. So I'm hoping that goes to press this year sometime but um, or in the next few months. But yeah, it is it is a little bit novel. I'm not the first person to think of it. And there are a lot of people looking at uh, underlying reasons for why people have IBS globally. So I can't claim to, you know, um, have come up with the idea really, but it's, um, you know, bringing it all together and, and understanding these varying reasons. You know, often researchers and scientists and clinicians are looking at individual areas and all, all I've really done is is just collect all those possible reasons together and, and pull together that in a, in a scientific publication. Now, one of the common symptoms which I seem to come across and it's talked about not probably as much as it should is the alteration in people's bathroom habits. Now, many people aren't always comfortable sharing information about the consistency and frequency of their bowel movements, but they seem to go hand in hand with gut function. Now, what would you consider normal or healthy elimination for the average person? Yeah, it's a good question because there's um, it's really hard to define. And um, the conventional sort of idea around what is normal might surprise a lot of people in the field of nutrition who are sort of eating high fiber diets and things. <laughs> but um, the, the conventional view is anything less than um, three times a week is, is considered sort of abnormal or not frequent enough. But I think a lot of people are eating really well and eating high fiber diets you know, the frequency is a lot more than that, you know, it's um, so for them, three times a week would be considered constipated. But the, you know, if you really want to get into what is healthy, um, one of the best ways to do it is not to talk about frequency, it's not to talk about symptoms. It's actually just to use a pretty well validated assessment technique called the Bristol stool scale. And what that does is, gives people a, um, an actual visual score based on the appearance of, of, of the feces um, as to, and this visual score actually correlates really well with transit time. And um, yeah, and basically if you've got slow transit, uh, you know what's going on. It's, it's lower on the, the scale, uh, yes. you know, one, two, three. And, and if you've got high transit, it's a three or four. And that actually is the best indicator of, what's healthy for you as a person um, because basically the, the issue with this whole question is is that most people get it wrong. Medical professionals get it wrong. Patients get it wrong. <laughs> no one really knows because we're all using different measures. It could be symptoms. It could be frequency. But the, the Bristol stool scale is, is uh, quite accurate and will help you determine as an individual what's, what's healthy for you. Yes, I'm really glad you brought that up actually because you alluded it alluded to it in your book and it seems something which everyone can access and just use on a daily basis to ensure that they're having healthy digestive function for listeners i'll put a link to the bristol stool scale in the description below when people have ibs symptoms or they have altered elimination um, they normally think it's something to do with their diet like a, a certain trigger food can you outline any common trigger foods that you've come across? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so firstly, it's important for people to understand that although symptoms can be associated with food, it doesn't mean food is the problem um, before we get into actual trigger foods. And the reason for that is because with um, people who have, um, you know, chronic pain and sensitivity and bloating, it's just eating can be painful. And, um, and frequently what happens is people develop negative associations with certain foods because that's aggravating their underlying condition. So, you know, it's, you know, it's like that old saying in relationships, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> and, it, you know, in, in IBS, it's often you uh, and not the food. And right. so that is a really important thing for people to understand. And we could come back around to what that means in terms of therapeutic implications later. But to get to your question, which is, well, what are the common trigger foods? There are some big ones that are frequently an issue for people with IBS, but they're not an issue for everyone. And they vary from person to person as a, as a disclaimer, you know, so I don't want to encourage restrictive diets if they're unnecessary, you know, an important part of identifying problem foods is really about personalization and working out whether or not food is actually the issue for you. But some of the big ones that really come up as uh, problematic foods for people, I mean, there are several really, is uh, gluten is a, is a big one, um, a very common cause of IBS-like symptoms. And you don't have to have celiac disease, importantly. Another area that's really come up into the forefront of dietary therapy for IBS lately is um, what we call the low FODMAP diet. So that's um, an acronym that stands for certain types of sugars and fibers uh, in food. And essentially, the low FODMAP diet is limiting those foods that are particularly high in these sugars and fibers. And that can work really well. And what that means on a practical sense is that for some people, certain fibers and certain starches in foods or, or sugars uh, could be aggravating their symptoms. And then, you know, there's a whole stack of others, but some of the so the big ones are um, um, beyond that are, are food sensitivities. Now, this is a bit of a controversial area is, is whether or not people have um, sort of delayed sensitivity reactions to food or not, but right. it seems that they do. And there are tests that are at least clinically useful, although they don't, you know, they're still... Um, um, their accuracy is still debated in the in the medical literature. They do seem to be clinically useful. And as you mentioned, gluten. Recently, I had on um, Dr. Tom O'Brien. Oh, great. He's alluded to that uh, the gluten, which is a protein found in wheat, rye, and barley, can be quite dangerous for some people and the long-term health of some individuals, increasing gut hyperpermeability and the risk of autoimmune diseases like arthritis, for example. How common do you see that people have a problem with gluten? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And the answer is we don't really know at the moment. And part of the problem is, is that there are three um, defined types of gluten sensitivities. There's wheat allergy, which is really rare. There's celiac disease, which is well-defined. It um, you know, is, has a prevalence of one in 100 people. And uh, that's something we can test for and identify. And then the the controversy comes from the third one, which is which is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So it's people who are sensitive to gluten, but are not wheat allergic, and they're not celiac. And that's the where the sort of conundrum lies, is because we don't have a test yet uh, for that. And 
Um, but scientists are working on it, and it seems, I mean, I'm overgeneralizing statistics here, but it seems the prevalence in the general population is somewhere around 10 to 15%, up to 20%, depending on which studies uh, you look at. So the the answer vaguely to that question then is, is well, it seems that up to 20% of people um, are reacting to gluten. Now, I want to introduce a caveat here and say that, well, they may be reacting to gluten, but again, it may not be the gluten, it might be you. And I think in some cases, what's going on here personally is that um, that actually there's, it's not so much the gluten, it's that you've got a, a gut that is um, just very sensitive and, and not tolerating the foods very well. So if someone does have this hypersensitive gut, what kind of interventions can be used to kind of minimize that? That's another great question. And there are quite a lot of different things that can contribute to that sensitivity. So I'll step back and explain what the sensitivity actually is first. And then yeah, we can explore some of the potential causes to why it becomes sensitive. So when you take a group of people who exhibit the symptoms we call IBS, so that's like pain, bloating, distension, diarrhea, alterations in bowel movements, one of the most characteristic things that you'll find in the physiology of these patients across, you know, whatever the cause is, but what you find in their physiology is that they have what we call visceral hypersensitivity. Now, visceral hypersensitivity essentially just means that the nervous system of your gut has become hypersensitive. So it's very sensitive to touch and movement and distension. And we think that this is the key reason why that people exhibiting the symptoms of IBS are experiencing pain, distension, including alterations in bowel movements and things. So the nerves inside the gut are hypersensitive. Now, to give people a, a sort of point of reference for what that means practically is it's it would be like if you um and they do experiments like this if you take a group of people and they do what it, what's called a cold presser test where they dunk people's hands in a in a bucket of ice water and what they've discovered is is that if you've got ibs your tolerance to that cold is a lot lower isn't right. that amazing that so is the, amazing so the sensitivity of your nervous system to pain, in this case cold, is much uh, has a much lower threshold. And what's fascinating is, is it's it's in their hands. You know, these are people with a gut problem, uh, but it seems that their whole nervous system throughout their body is more sensitive to pain and changes. And this is one of the reasons why just eating can be painful for people is this distension and this normal movement of food through the gut aggravates the nervous system and uh, and can cause pain. So the, the key question is, is, well, why does this hypersensitivity develop in the first place? You know, if we could really understand that, we could really potentially find solutions for it. And there are lots of possible reasons. And like any illness, there is probably many things at play that vary from person to person that are contributing. So there's no, unfortunately, there's probably not going to be a a simple answer to this but some of the things that have emerged as as being particularly important are um, stress strangely enough seems right. to 
your psychological stress can increase that sensitivity. And it's not that IBS is all in people's heads. It's definitely not. But it seems that psychological stress can aggravate that. So does lack of sleep, which is which is fascinating. It seems to have quite a big impact on, on that sensitivity. So um, we do know that people who have disrupted sleep rhythms, you know, such as shift workers or people with insomnia, they have a much higher prevalence of IBS. In fact, if you sleep restrict someone who doesn't have IBS, um, so cut their sleep duration by a few hours, um, you know, in one particular night, they'll start to exhibit symptoms of IBS the next day. It's much, you know, it's remarkable. Sleep restriction can cause digestive symptoms and problems. But probably of all the things that are being explored, one of the big ones is the role of gut bacteria. So it seems there's an interaction between um, certain gut bacteria and imbalances in our gut bacteria and the enteric nervous system or the nervous system of the gut and subsequent development of um, this thing called visceral hypersensitivity or increased sensitivity. Would an intervention like an all-liquid diet, for example, be beneficial for these people, soup, broths, juices, things of that nature? Yeah, you know, it's it's a good question, and it's never been tested, um, so we don't really know. Um, certainly, it's used, uh, enteral diets are, are used in, in other more severe gastrointestinal disorders short-term and uh, can be remarkably effective, but it's not really been studied in IBS, and but I think a, you know, a really interesting thing that I'm noticing and I'm getting a lot of feedback on is that sometimes you know, people are developing symptoms for reasons related to just general sort of cooking and food processing. And by that, I mean, it sounds crazy and too simple is that just people aren't cooking traditionally at home and are not taking the time to chew their food properly and are, are developing IBS-like symptoms simply because of that. So, you know, what we're talking about here is just, you know, chewing things down to a paste and cooking things properly uh, in a way that minimizes gastrointestinal symptoms. So it's, I think that there is something to this and liquids may be a bit extreme, but certainly soups, broths, stews, traditional cooking methods and chewing, which is reducing things down to a paste um, sim similar to a liquid, I guess you could, you know, think about it like that, could potentially minimize symptoms because you're, um, you know, essentially these things are, are pre-digesting, which is taking a bit of stress off your digestive system. Mm. It's quite a simple idea, but I suppose we just need research to validate it. I was just going to ask you, you brought up the low FODMAP diet before and how FODMAPs can exacerbate the gut. And I know Chris Cresser has recently alluded to how a high-fiber diet can almost be, for, for people with sens a sensitive digestive system, be rubbing a, um, a wire brush on a wound, I think he described it as. Um, and then you've got another group of people who try a low-fat diet for kind of minimizing IBS symptoms. Are there diets which seem to work with the majority of people, or do patients often require a personalized approach? Yeah, I mean, I'm all for personalized. I think at the end of the day, that's it. And um, But certainly, if you look at the data on the FODMAP diet, it seems to be one of the most effective. I mean, there's a very high response rate. Around 75% of people respond with an at least 50% reduction in symptoms, uh, if my memory is correct. So it's, 
you know, it really stands out as something that's remarkably effective. The caveat with the low FODMAP diet, and this sort of brings us into the issue of, you know, there's a bit of a conundrum and controversy around fiber is that it's essentially quite restrictive and it's also a low fiber diet um, by its nature. So uh, what you're doing with a low FODMAP diet is though you're taking this sort of wire brush out of the gut, so to speak, is that you're also removing um, the wire brush that keeps you healthy, <laughs> cleans your gut and keeps you fit. So I, I really think, again, we need to be careful if we're sort of, um, you know, placing things in the context of uh, offending uh, foods when actually they may be beneficial. And again, it may not be the food per se, it might be the gut that's sensitive. And certainly I believe this is the case with the reason why people responding so well to the low FODMAP diet is it may not necessarily be the diet that's the solution it's just symptom relief and actually the problem is their gut is very is just sensitive and um, a bit out of balance and focusing more on improving digestive health and the balance of the the gut so to speak could mean that people tolerate FODMAPs Yes, and it seems I know Professor Kevin Wheeling at King's College London has done a lot of work in this area and he found that people on a low FODMAP diet, if I rem remember this correctly, um, can introduce FODMAPs more so than they could tolerate before, but there's just a, like an upper threshold limit which they can't cross and like finding that limit seems to be the hard part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, this is a sort of standard procedure with the low FODMAP diet is once you've moved people into a restrictive phase, a rather restrictive phase, you slowly reintroduce things to find a tolerance. What I'm talking about is is actually maybe we're looking at the wrong thing with the FODMAP diet. And right. I have some the problem is no one's really challenging it in that way. Um, there was a group, a leading group of gastroenterologists several years ago, and I referenced this paper in my book in the section on FODMAPs, but um, it's it's a brilliant study. Basically, what they did is they took a group of people, challenged them with FODMAPs. So they gave them uh, challenges with things like lactose and sorbitol and, and some other sugars that are considered FODMAPs. They all got symptoms, as you would expect. And then what they did is they improved the health of their gut flora. Now, in this case, they were eradicating something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. They then after this um, improvement in their gut microflora, challenged them again with the FODMAPs and they were fine. There were no symptoms um, after response to the challenge. So for me, this says, well, hang on a second. Um, maybe the problem here is not the FODMAPs. Maybe it's the fact that our gut bacteria are over-fermenting these sugars and fibers in a way that's potentially detrimental and that improving our gut health and the health of our gut flora could help us tolerate these you know, what are natural foods um, better uh, rather than remaining on a restrictive diet. So it's sort of thinking beyond the dietary intervention to, well, why are these FODMAPs a problem for some people? Right. And and this idea of this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO is the idea that the bacteria from the large intestine go into the small intestine can you explain how that contributes negatively to health and is this a large contributor to IBS symptoms? Yeah, so it's a it's a great question and it's quite a controversial one at the same time. And right. so so to step back and, and set the scene, basically what small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is is exactly what the name suggests. And as you've described, is you have um, 
normally in a healthy gastrointestinal tract, you have a preponderance of bacteria in the large bowel. Now, what's happened in SIBO is these bacteria have grown up into the lower regions of the small bowel, which sort of sits above the, you know, the large bowel in, in terms of relationship. And they're not normally there. And what's happening is that these colonic microflora or these flora from the large bowel are now in the small intestine doing the same job they do in the large bowel, which is fermenting. So they ferment food basically and so what you've got all of a sudden in SIBO is over fermentation too far up in the digestive system in an area that's not really used to it so you get a lot of gas and distension and pain and these are the symptoms of IBS now because of this um, uh, pathophysiology a lot of scientists believe that SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is a key underlying cause of um, irritable bowel syndrome and i i think there's certainly some truth to this um we do know for sure that you know eradicating SIBO can result in good clinical improvements in people um, but there are a few caveats around this one of them is that SIBO is common in people who don't have symptoms so whether or not it's um you know a normal phenomena is is debatable um also the treatments that we have for eradicating SIBO um, often not particularly effective. It can reoccur and and um, there's problems around that. So it's a bit of a, a hot topic. My personal view is, is that it's certainly contributing, um, but we need to step back and ask, well, why is it there in the first place? And we all know, also need to question, well, is it a problem for this particular patient rather than just routinely, you know, testing and treating Um so it's yeah it's a it's a really interesting area um, to talk about and certainly there's a lot of research going on into SIBO globally at the moment that'll help us understand its um, impact and implications and and possible therapeutic interventions uh, moving forward. I'm glad you brought up bacteria in general because I wanted to dive into probiotics primarily because many people are aware that the benefits of good bacteria, which is often associated with eating live yogurt and fermented foods. And I recently heard from Dr. Francesca Farver, the Nutrition Society Irish Conference, where she outlined the three P's to promote a favorable microbiome, which are probiotics, prebiotics, and polyphenols. Now, how essential is it that individuals consume all three of these substances to promote the health of the gut? That's a great question, and I'm just going to blow it up for a second because yeah, of course i think um there's a bit of an overemphasis on the three p's or even you know traditionally it was the one or two p's really probiotics and prebiotics and polyphenols have sort of come into the scene later but i think what everyone needs to understand is that with um firstly probiotic research there's a very strong commercial bias so this whole fixation on probiotics comes from um, a very um, commercial bent, basically, which is influencing researchers, education, the rest of it. So we've had this real emphasis and fixation on probiotics, partly because there's a lot of money in it, and there's a lot of, you know, underlying reasons to educate people about it, get it, get that message out there, and things. And it is becoming very pharmacological. Now, that's not to say that they're not important, and they are really important therapeutic interventions i'm i'm sure of it but i feel like there's a strong overemphasis on on the importance of these for improving 
the gut microflora and there are a lot of limitations with probiotics that are often missed when the benefits are being communicated. Now, when I say I want to blow this up, I want to step back and say, well, forget the three Ps, let's talk about food. Because yes. really, it's the complexity of your overall diet, you know, forget polyphenols, fermented foods, probiotics, prebiotics, it's everything that is influencing your gut microflora in a much more profound way than any one of these ever will. Um, we know now that vitamins, amino acids, uh, fats, uh, pro, you know, other proteins, um, you know, a whole range of different food substances influence the gut microflora. And we also know that dietary interventions have a profound impact uh, across our microflora as well that is much stronger, uh, generally speaking, than any of these singular uh, interventions. Um, yeah, so I think that's what I mean when I think we need to step back and, and um, stop getting fixated on little pieces of the puzzle and, and, and step back and talk about food. What I'd love to see is some really, and we have a few, but see some great food-based interventions looking at a whole dietary approach um, to improving the gut microflora rather than just, um, you know, supplements and, and individual components. And I suppose just thinking about it, it's quite simple, isn't it? When you say the three Ps, sauerkraut would probably cover all three of them. Yeah, that's possible. Um, but again, I I think um, even with our you know, this sort of trend towards um, fermented foods as, as um, probiotics is we need to be careful because some fermented foods are not probiotics. So, you know, sauerkraut, for example, as to the best of my knowledge, has not been, I don't think it's been tested, so we don't know for sure, but it's not been shown to inference the gut microflora. So, right. you know, whereas um, a bowl of blueberries has, you know, so, you know, sometimes there's, this sort of assumption that things that have been fermented are probiotics, but the bacteria that ferment foods might be really good at um, fermenting sauerkraut, but they may not survive passage into the human gastrointestinal tract. And even if they do, they may have no appreciable uh, health benefit or effect that we, you know, that is, that is um, marked. So it's, yeah, I, I approach all this, um, uh, this focus on fermented foods with a, a little bit of scepticism, personally. That's an excellent point. Thank you for that. Now, in regards to specific strains, I know you said it's quite industry-funded um, and a lot of money has been pushed on this, but specific strains of probiotics seem to work well at reducing symptoms of IBS. I've seen it in several studies now. And I was wondering whether you thought that these combination of probiotics have any efficacy over using a single strain of probiotic for some individuals. Yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic question. There's a lot of um, misinformation around probiotics and it's a very confusing area for physicians and consumers as well because the market is so saturated uh, with different products. Um, there's a few general rules when you're looking at discerning what's effective and what's not. Firstly, uh, counts. Um, so the number of bacteria doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, the number of strains doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> um, what does matter 
is whether or not it's been shown to work basically that's that's really key so the the best question to ask is is there a clinical study on this bacteria or combination of bacteria at the dose it's being presented in in this product uh, for the condition I want to use it for. So in the in the case of IBS, um, it's a great example because it's a really well studied area in terms of clinical trials. And what you tend to see is that some work, some don't, some make symptoms worse, and um, and it doesn't really matter what the number is or what um, you know or how many strains is in the product. It's um, you know. It, uh, single strains at 1 billion work really well and so do multi-strain formulas at 1 trillion you know right. so that's the sort of range of difference why are we seeing these different doses used it's a researcher's best guess you know often they're just guessing um, and they're using a high range dose to ensure that the money that's being invested in a clinical trial pays off <laughs> you know the the one you know bacteria that I'm thinking of that it was used that as a 1 billion dose it was there was a dose response trial before they went into the clinicals so they so they knew that a fair what we would consider a low range dose was going to work just fine so it's yeah it's a it's a good question and and really number of strains doesn't matter and potency um, doesn't seem to matter per se it really the key thing about potency is that it matches the clinical study because that's the best guide we have Right. Okay. Excellent. And I suppose just ensuring that they're they're coated so they survive the digestive system as well. Um, generally, when probiotics are being um, commercialized, is what they are looking for in the strain characteristics in the in sort of the laboratory, so to speak, is they look for a few things, including acid resistance of the bacteria. Um, so generally speaking, when you're looking at commercial probiotics, they are acid resistant by their nature as a, as a bacteria. So they don't necessarily need to be in a special delivery system or a capsule that protects them or a coating or anything like that. They're generally um, naturally resistant to the acid to some degree. For the general consumer, is it wise to take probiotics for general health? It's a good question. I don't know. It's, it's funny, you know, I've been working in this area for, for many years, working very closely with probiotics, and um, I think it depends is my answer. And I think for some people, um, taking a probiotic regularly is a really great idea if it is helping support better health for them, um, keeping symptoms at bay, for example. Um, but I don't believe that necessarily everyone needs to take a probiotic and in some cases they could even aggravate symptoms um, for some people so I you know I think it it really depends and I wouldn't say that in every case everyone necessarily needs to take one now one question I wanted to ask you uh, which came up recently um, is that many people who who travel abroad contract parasitic infections especially when they go to southeast asia and south america and they may not know they have it until weeks later and it seems to cause severe bloating and digestive problems in general how frequently are parasites involved in hampered digestive health and is it a problem in the uk yeah it is i mean post-infectious um or infect infections while traveling um or even not you know food poisoning at home um, 
it's one of the main causes of IBS-like symptoms. And the reason is it sort of wipes out, you know, gut microflora. And certainly you see it a lot. It's, I, don't, I actually don't know what the statistics are in terms of prevalence, but it is a, it is a big problem. And you often hear stories of people, you know, saying I was never right since, you know, X time when I traveled or when I had food poisoning and, you know, really um, can be quite dramatic in terms of the after effects um, that it has on people's health. And in terms of what's doing it, it's not necessarily parasites. It can, can be, um, there can be parasitic involvement, but it can also just be bacteria that, you know, are quite transient as well. If, you know, if someone suspects that they, did have an infection while while traveling and they've developed you know sim, you know significant symptoms they really should be investigating it further and having appropriate parasitology done um uh, with you know through their gp or or uh, health professional now on a popular topic which seems to be everywhere now is the topic of fasting it's become very popular in the, and it's reported a lot in the media. And I know for some individuals with IBS, it helps their distension and bloating, which is often uh, a common symptom. Now, is there a benefit to fasting as an adjuvant therapy to treatment? Well, it's, it's a great question. And, and I think it's a bit ahead of the science because we don't really know. It, as, as far as I'm aware, it hasn't been um, tested for IBS per se. And... Um, my my sort of gut feeling, excuse the pun, is <laughs> is is that it probably would help, um, but not necessarily, you know, fasting in the traditional sense where you're just not eating. Um, what I'm sort of leaning more and more towards as this research evolves is is what I have coined uh, food rest, where you're just giving yourself a break from eating, basically, and that doesn't necessarily mean anything radical. Um, what I tend to suggest would be, you know, a reasonable um, practice is to extend the fasting period between um, dinner and and breakfast. Um, so if you can stretch it out to, you know, 10 to 12 hours at least and, and also consider, you know, if it works for you, I think everyone's different and fasting is not necessarily great for everyone. But if it works for you, um, just getting rid of snacks basically and limiting your food intake to meals. Um, so by doing those few things, what you're doing is giving your digestive system a, a lot more rest than most people are giving it because we're eating, you know, five times a day and snacking late at night or, or eating late at night and, or, or very early in the morning. So there's very little time for rest. And I think the potential benefit for that is, is that your digestive system essentially works in a in a few phases and one of these phases is um um kicks in when you stop eating food basically and it's a, a sort of a it's like a cleaning uh kind of phase and these muscular contractions start moving through um it's called the migrating motor complex and it moves through your gastrointestinal tract these muscular contractions when you're not eating basically so it's right that you know, it's sort of counterintuitive, but not eating is really important for improving gastrointestinal motility. And um, um, yeah, and we certainly know that motility is a is a factor in IBS-like symptoms. So there could be something to this. Okay, and would that work for people with, let's say, constipation? Just simply not eating and giving the digestive system a break would that help move things along? Theoretically, yes, and 
clinically, yes, but it's not really been well studied. Um, but certainly it works. And you, you see people eating less and less frequently can really uh, improve, you know, um, bowel frequency and, and uh, regularity. So, I, you know, I think there's something to it. And, you know, again, the question's ahead of the science a little bit, but the, right. the logic is there and the theory is there. And um, certainly it's, it can't hurt and it would be worthwhile uh, trialing as a strategy. I suppose with everything, it's a personalized approach, right, to see what, what works for the individual. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, with something like that, where you you know, essentially just increasing fasting period and, and um, reducing snacking. It's, you know, there's nothing to lose, really. It's not a, it's not a, a crazy intervention and, and it's certainly worth trying. I read a, an article of yours in the ICANN magazine a while back now. It was on a lipopolysaccharide or LPS. I was wondering if you could touch upon LPS and its role in digestion. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So it's a um, bit of a deep topic, but what I'll do is is um, is is try and summarise that. So, I actually wrote a, a review paper on this um, topic, uh, uh, which was published in 2017, um, looking at the role of nutrition in modifying what we call metabolic endotoxemia. Now, what's really interesting is is that um, this concept. Um, of metabolic endotoxemia has emerged as being really important for contributing to to chronic disease. And what it essentially means is, or what it's defined as, is a pathological or a high level of um, what we call lipopolysaccharide, also known as endotoxin in the blood. Now, that's a bit to get our heads around, but what's happening here is that normally... um, a small amount of what we call endotoxin or lipopolysaccharide from our gut bacteria uh, can get into our bloodstream. It's quite a normal phenomena. Everyone has it. And it's really just small fragments of bacteria getting through the gut into the bloodstream. Um, you know, and there's, uh, it's, it's okay. It's, it's actually quite normal. What's happening is is that due to a number of different things many of them dietary is that some people are getting a higher than normal level of these gut derived toxins into the bloodstream and that's activating um, problems systemically so we know actually it's not even think anymore we know that it's contributing in part to things like cardiovascular disease potentially uh, neurological disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and other chronic illnesses. This is a fairly well-documented phenomena now. Now, the question for us is then from a practical standpoint is, is, well, we know it's happening and we know it's a problem for some people. What can we do about it? How do we investigate it? How do we manage it? And the great news is, is that Actually, a large part of the reason we have excessive amounts of this toxin in the blood has got to do with what we're eating, and the solutions are actually quite simple. So what I did in reviewing the literature is tried to identify the things that we know are impacting these, the blood level of these endotoxins, and it turns out that actually you know, it's refined foods, not enough vegetables, not enough fiber, too much uh, fat, um, nutritional deficiencies seem to contribute as well as a few other more specific things uh, could impact it as well, like the three P's, you know, probiotics, prebiotics, polyphenols, and yes. excessive consumption of alcohol is a big factor. Um, 
yeah and the great thing is is that already we're starting to see work really considering this like clinical work where there have been interventions designed to change people's diets in a way that would modify circulating levels of these toxins and they work and the toxins go down and their health improves in you know multiple ways uh including their cardiovascular health in in particular so you know it's a pretty fresh area of research and um certainly even fresher in terms of clinical implications but there's i really feel like there's something to this and it's a key factor that is sitting somewhere between the interface of nutrition and, and health um, that's that's important. And I was wondering, is this condition or this metabolic endotoxemia linked to, or at least what contributes to it would be gut hyperpermeability or a leaky gut, which is commonly known? So definitely it's, it's part of it, but the, there are nuances to that. So with um, leaky guts, the way... I look at it as there are a few factors involved here and um, in determining um, the circulating level of toxins in your blood. And this includes leaky gut, but it also includes a few other things. And I really think the key things are firstly, what I've sort of coined the endotoxin load in your gut. So by that, I mean that some people tend to seem to have an overgrowth of bacteria that produce these toxins um, and that is a problem so we need to think about the balance of bacteria in the gut the other thing is is that there are two ways in which these endotoxins two key ways in which they get from the gut into the bloodstream and one of them um, is through this you know traditional view of intestinal permeability where we have the junctions that hold the intestinal cells together breaking down and they let these toxins through these gaps between the cells and they get into the bloodstream and and you know this is the this is the sort of traditional view of what leaky gut is and the mechanism involved but there's another mechanism that's equally important and that is the what we call the transcellular pathway so rather than going paracellular like in between the cells it's actually going through the cell and yes how that happens is fascinating it basically these toxins are hitching a ride on fat so the fats that we're eating in our diet actually act as a vehicle to transport these toxins through the cells through a normal physiological pathway in the absence of this traditional sort of leaky gut view so this is really interesting because these understanding these pathways a little bit better, these two key pathways helps us understand how we could uh, intervene and do something about it. So looking at the first pathways, well, we've got to ask, well, why are the junctions broken down? And it turns out that there are two things that we know open up these junctions. There are only two real ligands for these um, or keys that have unlocked these doors. And one of them is gluten, interestingly enough, um, and the other one is bacteria. So the, that's really fascinating is that bacteria and gluten, in fact, gluten is almost recognized as a bacteria by the gut. Uh, so it's working through the same pathway and opening up these this door to toxins that then seeps through the, the cells. So changing the gut bacteria, improving it, certainly probiotics have been show, shown to do this and prebiotics, and that could help lower blood endotoxin. Um, so that's really fascinating. And the second pathway, well, if it's related to fat, has a lot to do with the fat that we're eating. And it turns out that it's not 
just fat amount, which it seems to be. It's also the type of fat. And the take-home that we're seeing from the science to date is that if you're eating really unhealthy processed fats in high amounts from industrially cooked you know, um, foods, fat is the, the real problem. Um, when you're eating healthier fats, it tends to almost have the opposite effect. It actually lowers this circulating endotoxin and has a, you know, a very different effect physiologically than just fat in general. So it's, you know, it's not just quantity, it's also quality. So and, just to uh, clarify about healthy fats, are you referring to plant sources such as nuts, avocados, cold-pressed oils, things of that nature? Yeah, well, the, it seems that the uh, most important to focus on is the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids, which are not in plants, they're, they're in animals. and uh, Or you can get algae sources now, but the EPA and DHA, which are largely found in fish, but also some game meats and eggs and things like that, um, they're the ones that are being best studied and seem to have the more beneficial effect on reducing this metabolic endotoxemia and, and leaky gut. I think it's becoming more and more obvious as we're speaking that it's not one pill to fix an ill. It's a multifaceted approach that you need to reduce IBS symptoms or certainly treat the, the underlying cause. Now, how do natural remedies to treat or control the underlying cause compare to conventional treatment? They're similar and um, they both have limitations. If you're prescribing, I don't know, something like peppermint oil in the place of a, um, you know, a pharmacal, you know, a drug uh, antispasmodic, um, the effects are not dissimilar. And the issue is, is that in both cases, you're not really treating the cause. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you're looking at symptomatic, even if it's natural treatments, um, they often have a sort of variable effect and, and uh, may not you know, um, result in a really good lasting clinical effect. The, it gets a bit different when you start using natural products that are designed to correct the underlying imbalance. So, for example, you know, peppermint oil, great antispasmodic, works quite well, um, but it's not really going to fix the problem. It's more like reducing muscle spasms. But if you start using something like digestive enzymes for people that need it, so people that do have low enzyme production, which is something we can test for, um, you're really talking about a different creature in this sense that you're using something to support an underlying imbalance. And that has been shown to help keep people who need its symptoms at bay for years, uh, literally. Um, so, you know, it's, I think, um, you know, just like for like, one of the problems with natural medicines is they're not they can work like conventional medicines for symptom relief but really their biggest benefit is is that when we're when we're personalizing them to the to the patient and identifying you know things that they really need digestive enzymes is one example another one would be vitamin d you know we know that a lot of people with um, irritable bowel syndrome are vitamin d deficient you correct that deficiency you know it's not going to work for people who are not deficient but you correct that deficiency and some people get a lot better. Um, so, you know, it's about, again, personalizing. Is there any treatments or natural remedies which seem to work in most or the majority of patients with IBS symptoms? I think it's, um, there are a few things that really stand out for quick relief that tend to work quite well for most people. Probiotics are one, um, you know, good probiotics do have a pretty good response rate in, 
in a lot of people. So they're certainly worthwhile trialing. Um, as um, is is um, yeah, it's just probiotics. And part of the reason they're working is is imbalances in gut flora, one of the key underlying factors in the development of digestive symptoms, whatever whatever the cause. It seems to be a key thing. So that could be really key and. I think that for me, that probably stands out as one of the the most important um, ways to to get sort of quick symptom relief. I know we're coming up on time, so I've just got a few quick questions for you, which I seem to ask everyone that comes on the show. How important do you think it is that we promote the collaboration of healthcare professionals when tackling chronic disease? I mean, it's absolutely vital that there's collaboration and communication amongst healthcare professionals, and IBS is a is like an archetypal example because you have a condition that is multifaceted, requires different disciplines to tackle it. Um, you know, we know it responds really well to psychotherapy, like these sorts of symptoms, even if the condition is not in people's heads, you know, it's organic and physiological. Um, it often has a psychological toll. So things like psychotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy from a trained sort of um uh, person in that area can be really beneficial for people. We also know that a lot of people would benefit from seeing a gastroenterologist to rule out other potential causes. So there needs to be that sort of um, lens looking at you know the patient's um, picture. But also it would benefit immensely from nutritional medicine and therapy and intervention. So there really needs to be a nutritional therapist involved to help personalize diet and identifying underlying, uh, I don't know, nutritional deficiencies and and prescribe appropriate uh, nutritional interventions. And then you could probably add half a dozen more disciplines depending on what the patient needs. So really this cross-collaboration um, in terms of management is, is absolutely vital. Could you give me your opinion how you think medicine is evolving as new research emerges in this area? Lifestyle medicine's a funny thing. It's like we all know we need to sleep well and exercise and eat well and you know that's great, but the the challenge is is getting that into medicine in a meaningful way that's personalized and that helps um, manage and treat people's illness. And that's the next step, I think, is you know we know lifestyle medicine's important. It's how do we implement that in in practice? And I think, one of the challenges with lifestyle medicine also is is stepping up its game a little bit in in terms of getting a bit more sophisticated and personalized rather than just being, well, how do we get public health messages into practice? You know, that's great, but I really feel like, at least based on my experience, that there's a lot more to it than just eating well, sleeping well, and exercising. You know, there are nuances with nutrition and lifestyle interventions beyond that that are, are critically important for improving people's health, including personalized nutritional therapy, where, for example, you're identifying food sensitivities, reactions, correcting nutritional deficiencies, that sort of thing, which is a lot more sophisticated than the traditional view of lifestyle medicine. Could you give the listeners three tips to help improve their well-being and digestive health? Absolutely. I mean, one of the really cool things about what we're learning in terms of the human microbiome, this, this sort of bacteria 
that are part of us is that um, diversity is key. So, so I think the first thing I would say is that just think about diversity. Think about diversity as being fundamental to health. It is in other ecosystems uh, as it is in us, basically. And how do you promote, promote diversity in your microbiome? Well, the best way to do it is diversity in your diet because they all, all these little bacteria have different functions and they basically digest food. So the more diverse foods you can give them, the more you'll encourage different species to proliferate, grow and be happy. <laughs> and, um, and there's evidence now to suggest that really we should be going for diversity in terms of, in particular, you know, minimally processed plant foods. So like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, um, legumes, th those kinds of things, um, really key. So, you know, it's stretching out your diet and, and going for diversity, um, is, is really vital. So that'd be my first tip is just being sort of fundamental. So there's a lot of benefits beyond just your, your gut flora from that idea as well. Um, Another thing I think would be important is is watch your um and this has got nothing to do with nutrition is watch your day and night cycle basically because um you know people often overlook this but we have a circadian rhythm and it's been disrupted by exposure to electric lighting which is ubiquitous now in society and you know I live in London I can turn off my lights in the you know in the house and I can still see because this electric light pollution um, is, in London. is everywhere. Yeah. And what it is doing is, is disrupting our, our circadian rhythm and the circadian rhythm um, also heavily influences your gastrointestinal tract. So what do you do about that? Practically, it's really just extend the dark period and make sure that you're being exposed to dark as well. Um, so really aim for you know, getting away from backlit electrical devices and electric lighting after, say, nine, uh, you know, o'clock at night, or minimizing it and dimming things, and and um, trying to reset that rhythm is um, is really really key. And then I think beyond um, diversity, getting back to nutrition, it's really just you know an emphasis on eating well in general. And I mean, it sounds too simple. Um, but there's always beauty and simplicity. And one of the problems with medicine in general and nutrition in general is we tend to go too deep into specific areas. And really, I think it's vital to step back. Like I said, with probiotics and fermented foods, like forget fermented foods and probiotics, step back and think about your overall diet. Like that is really foundational and it's the health um you know, of your overall diet that's going to t determine your overall health more than any single nutritional intervention. You know, all these other things are great, but they're really complementary to getting those foundations sorted because uh, that'll have the biggest effect. So just to clarify and confirm all three, it's diet diversity, number one, uh, sorting out your circadian rhythm or day and night cycle. And then the third one, diet quality and looking at your diet as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ben. And so lastly, let people know where to find you and what projects you have coming up. It's probably best just to tune in to uh, my website, Twitter, Facebook, things like that, just to keep an eye on things because I 
generally got a lot of different things going on in terms of conferences, speaking events, publications, etc. So um, my website is timeforwellness.org. It's about to change to scientificwellness.com, but either of them will get there. Um, I have um, Twitter and Facebook links and a free newsletter um, all on that site. So probably best just to to jump in there and, and connect through to to the others um, if, if you want to tune into social media and things. I'll put links to all your social media feeds and your website in the description below, which the listeners can access at www.functionalhealthinfo.com slash Ben Brown. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure to speak to such a renowned expert in the natural health community, and I hope that we can do this again soon. Yeah, absolutely. My pro- pleasure. And I, you know, I love the work that you're doing and it's great to see this message getting out there. So thank you for taking the time to set this platform up and, and share the good news with people. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben Brown. You can find links to Ben's book, website, and social media in the show notes, as well as everything else that we discussed today. It's not every day that I enjoy talking about bowel movements, but today was certainly one of them. If you want to support the podcast, please subscribe and don't forget to check out the other episodes available in the series. I would love it if you got in touch on social media through Instagram and Twitter and let me know what you think. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.